Okay, I hope tonight we have one word for you at the end of the evening, which is inspiration. I really feel inspired tonight because we've got a group of entrepreneurs here who started a company in a way that for me is absolutely exemplary, and, and that is Salsify. So before I do anything, I just want to have the Salsify team just stand up and I'll quickly introduce them and then uh, we'll get going for the rest of the workshop. So Jason, Jeremy, and Rob, great. So you'll be hearing from the Salsify team as they come through this evening. And that's really the value of these workshops. Just to be clear, I'm here as sort of food, uh, but they're really the main course. Um, and the, the important thing is to get an example of how this actually impacts your business. So we'll talk about the Salsify case study as we go through this, and I'll bring a few others to life too. But I encourage you to pose questions to them, to engage them both before, during, and after. And then as I say, I'll, I'll put the frameworks up to try to give you some sense of this thing. Now, one of the things I'm excited about tonight is that we had so much feedback on company formation, which used to be one session, uh, and it was always squeezed, that we've actually broken it into two. Because what people said was, look, vision, mission, and culture are so important, we want you to focus on that, and we want more examples on that. So you'll see this a bunch of new material uh, since the last couple of years of doing this. And then we've got next workshop, uh, as Jody said, November 7th. We're going to focus on the people piece that comes after this, which is how do you hire and uh, get team building going. And they, they very much go together. So you know, watching one without the other is not going to make much sense. Because actually, if you don't have a very clear vision mission, uh, it's going to be very hard to hire people. And your culture is very much a central part of how you hire people too. But then, of course, there's a whole series of skills that are involved in hiring and uh, team building. And so that'll be next week's uh, workshop. And we'll have a lot of fun on that one too. So I always love to start with why. I mean, you're in a gracious audience. You're always here. You're always very attentive. It's, a, it's great to have another full house. But why are you here? Um, you've probably got your own reasons, but I will give you my reason for putting this agenda so early on in a startup's life. It's as simple as this. If you don't have the people to execute and the culture to select the right people and empower them to do the right thing, and then the vision to actually engage, focus, and unify everybody on getting the result you want, it's really almost impossible to execute on building anything, whether it's a product or a company or a long-term business. It just is fundamental. And so I'm going to just put this in perspective by saying, We've talked a little bit about the value prop. It is an important starting point. Obviously, if you don't have an idea for what you can build that's going to solve a really meaningful problem, which we covered in that particular workshop, you probably don't have this, the basis to start a company. But I also often get this, asked this question. Is it worth starting a company if you have a great group of people and you don't yet have your value prop, your idea together? And the answer is yes. Um, I'm doing a spin out of MIT at the moment, which is really based on the quality of people. They're just world-class experts in a particular discipline. And we've done exactly that in things like open source or in e-commerce, where the people actually had already the basis for forming a team with a clarity of purpose that was worth starting a company around. So this is actually not sometimes um, started with a value proposition. It is sometimes started with a great team and a great group of people. But if you have the value prop, then obviously people follow. And execution, which is what I was talking about, how uh, this will impact, is next. And the vision mission is where you're headed. And I would look at it this way. I'd say that if you know you've got a great value proposition and you've got a great problem to solve, what we're going to try to do is craft a clarity of purpose as to what will be the impact you can have in the marketplace that you're addressing. And that's your vision mission. And then how will you establish a culture uh, that will build an, an enabling company? And I want to make a very quick statement here because there's a lot of flip discussion about you know, lean startups and the lean methodology. And it basically pays zero attention to culture. And I don't think you should pay uh, lip service to this. Because for all, and you've 
seen me do mnemonics before. In this case, the mnemonic is, for all the listening and learning that you do, for all the iterating and pivoting you do, there is one thing that I think should stay consistent in your business, and that's the culture. So I don't, I don't believe that no matter how many times you might change, for example, something like your product definition or your uh, business model or even a focus on a segment, all those iterations are great. But if you're constantly doing all that, I can tell you, underlying that, you're going to want a foundation that feels solid, and that's going to be your culture. It's the one thing I really believe that should be consistent. It's the thing you shouldn't be iterating. Um, you shouldn't have to you know, recreate your culture halfway through building your business. That is really hard to do. And uh, for many people, by the way, uh, when they see that kind of change and chop in a company, for example, you know, turnover in leadership and then changes in culture, it's a signal that something's wrong. And so this is why early on establishing what your culture is, what the values are that are important to you is so critical because if you can build that consistency, it becomes the basis on which people can start to feel rooted in working with you um, as, a, as a startup. And it can really build the value of your business. So let's just simplify all of that and say the following. Your value proposition is a starting point. Your vision mission is what you're aiming for. Your people and team are obviously the basis on which you execute. And your culture is the underlying enabler. So that's how we're going to talk about things tonight. That's kind of our agenda for the evening. So let's jump right in. The vision and mission is something that many people also skip over. They tend to think of, hey, we're building some great product, or we've got some great idea, and we've got some challenge that we're trying to get through. You could skip it. But I actually think it's important for three reasons. If you don't have a vision and mission, and all you're talking about is the feature or functional product you're building, it's very hard to get inspired about, well, what impact does that have? And I know most people, whether you're at Harvard or MIT, many of you in the community here, have some very noble projects, some very impactful projects. You're wanting to change healthcare in the third world, for example. I know there's a team here that's, for example, changing the way that, that vaccines are delivered uh, in the world. That's highly impactful. And they have a vision that's very meaningful, which is how to reduce the cost of healthcare for you know, the underdeveloped communities. That's the kind of thing that's very inspiring. And if you can get specific about it, it can help align people, it can help focus them, and it can help empower them. So let's talk a little bit about how would you go about developing your vision and mission. Most people have at least some idea of a marketplace that they're addressing. And once you have that idea, the first question I'd ask for yourselves is, how will the market evolve? How do you see it developing? What do you see changing? So if you're, for example, developing a mobile application, obviously something that's changing is the fact that everybody's got now many different ways that they can access the web and the device that they're carrying with them is 24-7, always on and always with them. So that actually changes a lot. It means you can make assumptions about the kind of information people have at their fingertips, how they might use it, et cetera. Those are the kinds of things, if you haven't got a vision statement, you might start to use to form it. So you might say something like, our mobile app is going to enable people to access information anytime, any place, and to be able to move their business process forward from wherever they are in the world in order to and whatever your company is going to do. Uh, and an example might be, in order to enable mobile workers to drive the, the uh, delivery of their products and services to, to a much um, you know, greater efficiency. And you know, we've got many examples of these things, but I'll pick one for you. One of our companies that does that made a mission statement which was as simple as this, which is we, they wanted to empower mobile workers to have the fastest access to information to save lives. OK, that sounds meaningful. Um, so at that point, you've got something that's very clear, very compelling, and very impactful. And that's a lot more interesting than saying we're going to build a mobile app that can be used in hospitals. 
I mean, it's pretty obvious to state that, but that's the difference between having a vision mission and not having one. So how the market will evolve and how you lead it is the basis to ask for yourselves what should be your vision. And vision mission, by the way, they, they're sometimes combined. Some people like to split them. Some people make like the, the vision be very long term and mission be a little closer term and a little bit more specific. I like to think about the mission, if you're going to split it, as being an inspiring statement of intent. In other words, when you deliver this leadership, you will have an impact of one short form or another. So let's jump in and, and use an example here. How many of you use Google? I should ask the other question, actually. Does anybody in this room not use Google? It's a verb now. I mean, OK, so we get that. Now, let's go back and imagine that Sergey and Larry were starting a company where what they said was, we are going to just index all the world's information. OK, yeah, and <laughs> now what? I mean, it's a techie interesting thing to say, but I don't think your mum would be using that, or you yourselves, or your, potentially your grandchildren would be using it if all that's, the, that's all they did was they indexed all the information. So that wasn't what they said. They didn't say, we're just going to index the information in the world, and please come join us. They made a vision and mission statement, which was to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Now, at that point, you start to get a sense of, aha, OK, that's why you're indexing it all. That's what you know, the purpose of Google is. And it becomes interesting for everybody to speculate and think about, wow, what if you could get access to all the world's information? Information that's in libraries, information that's on the web, information that's now you know, being captured, for example, with cars driving around uh, streets you know, to, to give you maps. Um, all that information could be combined and collected and used for many, many different things. And that's why no hands had to go up when I said, does everybody use Google? Because it's all becoming accessible. It's all becoming very useful. And so this is the kind of mission statement that not only makes sense, but ultimately hopefully makes uh, a basis for somebody to get inspired, for you to make a hire, for you to also keep people focused, and for many of the uh, things that are going on beneath the radar at Google to have a purpose. Now, one of the companies that's hot in the news, and I always like to keep these lectures current, is Twitter. How many people use Twitter here? I'm embarrassed to say I finally do, because I was forced into it a long time ago. Uh, OK, anybody who showed up their hands, what do you use Twitter for? Anybody? Go ahead. News. News. So are you a reader, or are you an actual Twitterer? Both. Both. So you, do you read it, or, and do you share it as well? I read it, share it. I come up with my own tweets. I, it's sometimes comical, sometimes serious. It depends on so the mood of the day. Great. So uh, it's news for you. That was in one word. So what do you think Twitter's um, vision and mission should be? Connecting the world. Connecting the world. I, I like that. That's, that's very empowering, too. Yeah. Um, what do you think it was when they started? Providing an easy tool for companies to communicate. OK, well, the, the good news is no matter what you said, it would have been better than what they had, because they didn't have one. <laughs> so. Uh, Twitter actually came out of, as in uh, many cases with startups, it came out of an experience actually from a company called Podio who was doing podcasting that didn't work out. And um, the founders realized that actually what they needed to do was simplify everything. And they figured out as they were developing what became Twitter that if they really simplified messaging down to this level, it could be really useful. Uh, well, since then, they've grown a lot. And most of you will now know they're about to go public. Um, that's about the most badly kept secret in the world right now. Um, and they've evolved to saying they give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. 
And I think it's pretty cool. Now, imagine if they'd actually started with that. Uh, we might have all understood what the hell Twitter was for, for starters. Uh, and, and I might have actually been able to figure out whether I should have used it earlier on. But obviously, they've been very successful despite of it. So I'm making the point here because it isn't critical that you have a mission statement and a vision statement up front. They've been very successful without it. But as it becomes clear what your mission and vision is, it's a lot easier for people to grasp, OK, should I engage with them? Should I go join them? Or, or you know, should I be part of this movement or not? And I think, as in Twitter's case, it's become clear that uh, both can be successful, both starting with that one and then obviously developing one that can be empowering afterwards. And I'd like to just have Jason share with you what Salsify does and how they've developed their mission. Yeah, so we're one of those companies that um, we're still in the process of figuring out what our mission statement is. But I, I, I just had a couple comments on, um, to add to what Michael said. I, I worked at a couple companies before Salsify. We just started it last year. I worked at Indeca. Who's familiar with Indeca? Really good Boston company did search and browse. Started about 10, 11 years ago. And, and we powered about um, half of the internet retailer top 100 for e-commerce search and browse. So sites like Walmart and Home Depot um, ended up uh, very successfully uh, uh, integrating the company with Oracle um, uh, in 2011. And before that, Parametric Technology, which was another Boston company that did 3D computer-aided design uh, before there was 3D printing. Uh, so both of those companies, I think, were, were interesting to me because we didn't have formal mission statements at either one of them. But when we didn't have the mission statement in the minds of folks, it was very clear that um, it was sort of clear when things were going wrong. So I think back to Indeca, we, 10 years up and down. There were times where we were incredibly successful. There were times where, I think back to 08, to where everything was falling apart. We had a hard time keeping everybody focused. When we didn't have that mission statement that kept everybody in the company aligned, that, that the management team was able to push down to folks, it was incredibly difficult to retain people. Um, which, which, as you're growing a startup, keeping people on board and retained is incredibly hard and important. And so that was one of the things that, for us at Salsify, we said we really need to make sure that we've got something that unites us. It's not what we're working on day to day. It's not what folks are doing. But we should be able to tie everything back to that. And for us, we were going after a problem that we saw in e-commerce. Who's familiar with e-commerce? Um, who's got some exposure to the space? All right, so I'll try to keep it fairly basic. You've got. Um, Everybody who's selling products online, whether it's Amazon or Walmart or Target, has to collect the product information that they use to put on the product detail pages. And it turns out that's an incredibly stupid process. People are sending spreadsheets around. They're picking up the phone. You go to a drugstore.com, there's a whole floor of people who are doing nothing more than picking up the package of the product they're selling and typing the information into their internal systems. You would think that it would be a totally automatic, you know, publish, subscribe, really slick process for sharing this stuff. It doesn't work that way at all. Um, and it's incredibly inefficient, and it's a really big problem for folks now because you've got companies trying to expand their assortments to compete, you know, create marketplaces to compete with, with Amazon, and um, you've got brands that are really trying to do a better job at showcasing their, their products through different channels. So we looked at this problem and said there ought to be a way to um, really create a, a network of product information that brands can publish out and retailers and, and users, application authors, can subscribe to and consume product content. And so we said that's what we wanted to do. It's a big network that we want to create. It's a long-term play. It's something that's going to take a very long time to deliver. But we, we knew that even though we were going to start with a small process, we wanted to have that unifying us. And having that, that concept, even though it's not necessarily what the engineers are building every day, it's not necessarily what we're selling from a beachhead perspective every day, having that is incredibly helpful when we're 
you know, pitching candidates when we're just internally prioritizing what we're going to do and, and talking to other folks. So uh, I, I, it's not something that we necessarily put up on a slide um, when we're in meetings every time, but I can tell you that having it um, is very helpful to have just as an aligning principle. Thank you very much. So what's great about Jason's story is that in the very early days of engaging with uh, Jason and his team, he actually came to one of these workshops. So he and his team were here in this workshop and uh, subsequently came and said to me, would you like to come spend some time with us as a team? There were only three founders at the time. They were about to hire their first couple of engineers. And we sat down and we didn't talk about you know, what the product was going to do or what the 10 things were that they were building. We talked about this you know, mission statement. And the guys described to me their vision, which I thought was brilliant. And that was that information would flow so seamlessly between those people who were creating products and those people who were selling them and all the distributors and, and potential uh, outlets for those products that uh, you would literally be able to buy anything anytime, anywhere with the right information at the right time. And it's incredibly hard to do, as it turns out. You know, the more we've begun to dig into it, it turns out that products are constantly changing, the channels are constantly changing, people are selling things globally now, they do it through, through two-tier distribution in many instances. And the faster the product cycles occur, of course, the faster that information has to flow through all those different channels. Oh, and by the way, it's a two-way world too, because people now comment and review and rate products, and that turns out to be an important about, a part about how they hire them. They add things like their own videos and how-tos on products. And so this is like, not going to work in the old model. It was a clearly broken problem. So you know, for those of you who are here for the value proposition, this was a mission-critical broken process. You can't sell shit if you don't have the right information on it. It's as basic as that. So commerce would grind to a halt without these guys. So what's exciting for people who do know the e-commerce world is that that mission statement is really compelling. It may, means that they're going to be effectively the lifeblood. Think about them as the, the veins and arteries of information that enable commerce. And so it was very exciting to see this team develop this vision and mission. And it became very easy for me as an investor to get engaged on it. So it's a real world story. I encourage you to talk about it uh, with them. And um, there's also a post up on my site on it if you want to read the sort of how this happened. Okay, now I got some feedback last year about how do you balance vision, mission, and execution? Uh, and it, the story, or rather the question goes like this. Most entrepreneurs come to me and they say, look, I, this vision mission stuff is really important, I get it. But most VCs just want to know, you know, how am I going to get my first customers and have I got some traction? Uh, and I would say, well, of course that's important. You know, you, you've got to be able to do both. And that's the balancing act that uh, we want to try to give you a sense of tonight. So I've both written a post on that that is on the site, how do you balance these two things? And also tonight I've added a whole section on execution and we're going to link the two. But what I will say is that the first thing you want to do is develop a roadmap. In other words, per that diagram, uh, I said, you know, you start with a value proposition of what you do now, and then you've got this vision of where you're going to be in, you know, five, ten years' time or whatever it might be. And between those two, the roadmap bridges the here and now with the where you're going. And what you want to try to do is describe your road ahead and in as much detail as you can, talk about some of the tangible steps that it will take you to get there. So imagine it's like a product roadmap at one level. It might also be a hiring roadmap. What are some of the key people you need? It might also be, for example, a market roadmap. You might talk about some of the things that are changing in your marketplace. That might be distribution changes. It might be things like regulation changes. Whatever you can see happening in the future, put those out there as part of your roadmap. And then talk about how you think you'll respond to them. What is it that you will do to adapt to the evolving market that you're addressing? And in as much detail as you can, and by the way, I don't mean like pages and pages, but in thought 
and clarity of communication. Give your audience, whether that's your potential employees or potential funders or potential customers, a sense of what this roadmap will do for you. Now here's a little secret for you. Customers don't know they want this, but they do. When they're dealing with a startup, they are not going to buy your first product. They're probably going to try it and spit it out. They'll probably really end up buying your third product, version three. Nobody talks about this, but it's the truth. Uh, particularly in our world, in the software world, for example, you very rarely get your first product right. You very rarely have all the reliability, all the scalability, let alone the features and everything else built into it. So this roadmap's really important, even for customers. It's often about you sharing with them that you have an understanding of how their business is evolving and that while you listen and learn and figure out how to iterate and pivot, <laughs> you are going to be developing along a roadmap that they can rely is going to meet their needs. And so this is extremely important for all the potential stakeholders in your business. So for that purpose, I'm going to again bring up Salsify and Jason to share how they're thinking about the roadmap. And you know, they're not going to instantly have a network that links everybody. So Jason, come on up and share how you're thinking about your roadmap. Yeah, so this is a, this is a slide that we used internally and we're able to, to repurpose it for this, which is always, always good about slides. Um, it, it, it loosely correlates to a product roadmap, but it was also a go-to-market roadmap. Uh, for us and, and just sort of a, a prioritization of what we're going to be focusing on from a customer messaging over a few years. So remember, the, the, the end goal is this network where people can publish and subscribe to content and you've got a huge network and you're really, you're really this incredible infrastructure that powers online commerce. But it's going to take a while to get there. So we, we tried to break it down into steps. We wanted to be able to build very easy to sell, you know, easy to pitch value props. So we, we broke it up into four simple steps and the steps aren't that critical. For all of you guys, it's more just as an example of what we did. We wanted to make, as a first step, make creation and management of that content very easy. Um, that was something that basically said, how do, we, how do we make life better than just dealing with Microsoft Excel? Because we can sell that. Um, two, once we have that, then we can make sharing of the content easier within an organization and across organizations. So again, we're kind of increasing the value, changes the sales model a little bit, changes the product we have to build. Then we wanted to make collaboration easy and actually, um, grading that content and giving feedback on how it's working and having the, the retailer like a Walmart say, hey, I want more information around this area. So we wanted to improve that. And then finally, once we've got all these brands and these retailers participating, reuse of that content becomes really possible. So just an example of a roadmap, but an, another concrete data point of how this matters. One, I mean, we didn't have this quite so concise when we were starting out, but in the early days we had like all startups, built some early versions of the product and we, we threw it out there. And we were really fortunate in that we got some inbound interest from folks that were interested. And one of them was Philosophy, which is a cosmetics company that makes you know, creams and toners and all kinds of products like that. So um, they saw it and I remember when they came in and they described what they wanted, it was pretty much, you know, pretty much one and two. It was not, not big, but we could barely do part of one. I remember thinking that there's no way we're going to get these guys, they're going to see a demo, and, and we're missing all the features they need. And, and actually having the roadmap, not the product roadmap, but the company roadmap, when we ended up doing the, the demonstration and talking to the VP of e-commerce, this overcame so many product objections. I mean, there was just a, it created so much credibility with the guy where he was like, you know what, I, I love where they're going, it's aligned with where I want to go, I'm glad you have that and I'm willing to bet you know, not a ton of money, but I'm willing to bet a little bit on you guys to, to see where you're going to go. And that was how we landed one of our first few customers. And, you know, if it was just, if we didn't have that, that roadmap, 
again, it's not really a product roadmap. It's more just a, a vision. Uh, I don't think we ever would have gotten them, and, and it's helped us to this point. So it's just an example of, it's, it's of a, what you can do. It's a great example. If I can, I'm going to keep you up here for a minute because okay. I also, I, I know that uh, the guys in the room at this stage are probably saying, that I can't think about that particular uh, brand, but the, the women probably can. Let's think about a guy example. So I know one of the customers we interacted with was B&H. So how many of the, uh, not to be sexist here, but, but how many of the people here use cameras or are into photography? Gino putting up his hand for doing the videoing, so that's good. Um, okay, so there's a number of you. So why don't we talk a little bit about this problem in, a, in that example. T tell me a little bit about what you did for B&H and, and, for example, the potential roadmap that would have to be solved for, for them. Well, B&H, they were our first customer, so we did whatever they wanted. Um, <laughs> it was, it was, it's interesting. B&H, I think, is kind of one of those examples of the first product that you build isn't necessarily, um, you know, kind of what you build long term. Um, they, their, their problem was, uh, they were a retailer, so they're out there selling these cameras and selling, actually they sell a whole bunch of stuff. And for them, they, one of the ways that they compete with an Amazon or a Walmart or anybody else on price beyond, uh, beyond just the product selection is the quality of the content. And it was really important to them that a photographer would go to them as the authority on a piece of equipment. And you could go to B&H and you would know that if you went to B&H, their merchandisers would tell you that these lenses are compatible with these cameras and you know, there was no chance of ever getting anything wrong. And um, so when, when, uh, when we started working with them, the problem was that process of creating the content and in particular kind of cross-referencing the content, saying that these lenses are compatible with these cameras was completely manual. I mean, they had eight guys literally doing nothing more than typing in this SKU is compatible with this SKU because they were using their domain knowledge about cameras. It turned out there was a ton of, of data locked up in the product content. Camera lenses have certain attributes like the mounting type that they have, and they are compatible with certain cameras. And if you could use that, you could suggest a lot of information to the retailer merchandisers that would help them automate that process. And so that, that was kind of how we helped them. Um, uh, just as an example, but, right. but the one that was really nice was when we had an inbound interest and so even though I like cameras more, I'm, I'm now partial to beauty products. Um, <laughs> so. Excellent. So hopefully you've got the sense now of why roadmaps are important for all your stakeholders. Um, and I think Jason gave a perfect example there with philosophy about how it actually helped them land their first customer when they only had a very simple MVP initially that was at the very beginning of this roadmap. So a big believer in that's how you balance the vision and execution is to put the roadmap in between. Uh, we'll continue to develop examples and cases for you and I'm happy to talk to people afterwards about it. But let me take a quick pause here before we go into culture and say any questions on vision and mission and the importance of it from anybody? Yeah, one at the front. Uh, the question is, when, when do you present it to the customer? So for example, roadmap, do you actually talk to with your customer about uh, your roadmap? So, uh, Jason, do you want to jump in? I think you gave a sort of a heads up on that. Yeah, it's more, for us at least, it's much more organic than that. I mean, our sales process is more of an inside sales type model, so we don't have exhaustive enterprise sales uh, process. So for us, it just comes up in the flow of a conversation with a customer. It's a very natural conversation. Most customers are, or prospects, I think, are going to ask. When they see a demo, they're going to ask, well, where are you going? You know, and when they ask that question, it's not just about where is the product going. So you kind of want to be ready for that because it's an opportunity um, to, to lay the groundwork for, for a relationship with that customer. So for us, it was just very natural. Um, happened. We didn't present any slides or anything. We just talked to the high points and, and adjusted to that customer. 
And what I would say in a generalist th th sense, um, thank you, Jason, is that it isn't, as Jason says, that you want it up front in your slide deck or it's got to be the first thing see people see on your, on your website. But it sort of says you've got your act together when somebody does ask the question, OK, where are you headed? And am I going to be aligned with you? And do we feel like we're headed in the same direction? Because guess, point, guess what? If you both start at one point and you head in a different direction, you wouldn't know that unless you're clear about you know, your vision and mission. Uh, that's that's a very interesting answer and and basically a follow-up question then usually with a roadmap there is a timeline so when the customers ask you okay you're planning to make collaboration is easy and they see you in six months time they say well is it already there I mean how far we should w wait so to some extent you 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 need you in a way when you're giving away your roadmap you are actually doing promises which you don't know if you can accomplish? I mean, uh, how, how do you deal with that? It's a, that's a, a great follow-up question. I, for us, at least, we don't position in the roadmap as a traditional product roadmap. We're going to deliver this feature on the state. It truly was a company roadmap, and it was more to give them a sense of direction than it was to give them a sense of when they were going to get certain capabilities. They just wanted to know, most of the prospects just want to know, where's the company going? You know, and as long as it's going in the same direction that they hope, solution vendors are going to go in the direction of, then they were happy. Of course, there's other follow-on questions that come up about, well, if there's a particular feature that somebody needs, when is that feature going to come out? But that, that is really a distinct topic. Usually, I find that this conversation happens more with the economic buyer, right? With the person who's actually signing the check for the product and doesn't necessarily care about when a particular feature is coming out. His team, so her team may care about, about details like that. Um, but, but at least for this, very much when we talk about it, we position it as the direction of the company, not as when are, when are we going to do certain things. So I, I think that's perfectly said, and I just want to underline that. We are talking about a roadmap that's the company roadmap, as Jason was emphasizing here, associated with the vision and mission. That's not to say you should have a product roadmap that has detailed timeline and everything else. And that becomes a place where people do expect you to, to obviously deliver on time. And so your promises become much more critical. This is more directional. And it's more about establishing how you might build a relationship. And by the way, because you engage closely with the customers, you may change your roadmap. You may, you may evolve it. You may, in fact, do exactly what Jason was, was hinting at, which is that his first customer, B&H Photo, turned out to be a fantastic customer and actually you know, paying a very nice price for the product. But when we looked at the roadmap, actually, I shouldn't say we, when the team looked at the roadmap, they decided for their reasons that that actually wasn't the right roadmap to pursue with the customer. So it can also tell you sometimes what not to do. I don't know whether that's a a fair thing to, to point out in your path. You're nodding at the front, so for those you can't see. We have one other question, then I'll, I'll keep uh, moving us forward. Uh, so just to reiterate, so you would say like the roadmap is more of like a fleshed out like version of like your values to like present to your like your potential clients or customers more so than like a tangible like a step by step. Yeah, good, good question. Not so much the values, um, not, not so much what you know, the culture and the values, but more the, the, the buyers, the, the prospective customers, you, you have so little to show when you're a startup. I mean, I just think back to what we have, I think back to what we have now and it's so little to show. I think back to what we had six months ago and it, I'm not, I don't even know how we were able to do a five minute demo. Um, you have so little to show that you have to give them a level of confidence that you've got a vision and that you're, you're the path you're going on. Because when you've got so little to show, there's a hundred directions you can go. They just want to know if, where you're going aligns with some of the problems that they want to see solved um, to, to get to this broader vision. Because there's nobody that we talk to who doesn't agree with the concept of, God, if you could make product information easier for me to, to get into my online commerce, 
I would buy that tomorrow. Call me in five years when you have it. And that, unfortunately, is not a very productive um, conversation as for a startup. Um, so for, it's really more about the direction, and then the, they now have a feeling for you as a partner. They may say that one of these things is real important to them, and they want to work with you on it in advance and, and pull it forward. So it's more about direction than values. With that said, values are incredibly important. We're um, going to come on to that. But. So. So thanks for the question, and we will def definitely get to the values piece. I'll just put one last example in your mind as to why this is important. So many of you know I brought uh, um, Jeffrey Moore through, the author of Crossing the Chasm, who's covered the sort of early phase of startup very well, go to market. And he underlines very clearly that the early buyers are often visionaries. So just think about that term for a second. Guess what visionaries are looking for? Vision. So. If you don't have a vision to sell to a visionary, you don't have anything to sell to them. And that's traditionally why, as Jason's pointing out, this becomes a conversation that's so important early in a startup's life. You've got to have a connection with your potential audience that is meaningful to them. And that's usually a directional question, uh, a directional statement. It's a sense of what can they believe that you're going to do. And obviously, most of it is promises, actually, to the point that was made earlier on. Okay, so. A great subject, we'll chat about it afterwards for those who want to stay, but I'm going to keep us on time and move forward here. And I'm going to start the culture section. Now a quick pause for a second. Everything I'm going to tell you tonight is up for question. Everything. So you're not going to get any answers from me at all about culture tonight. Uh, so those of you who are already um, you know, halfway to going to sleep, you can go to sleep if you're looking for answers. This is the wrong session for you. By contrast, culture is all about what you personally want to draw out and build into your business. It's hugely personal. So you'll see why as we go through this. So let's jump right in and say, again, why is culture important? Anybody got any sense of how many decisions are made outside of your operating framework as a startup? It's hundreds. Just think about R&D for a second. You're probably, you know, if you even have three or five engineers, they're probably making dozens of decisions every day without the clarity of you know, dozens of customers that have you know, been working with you for years because you don't have any customers. And so you're in many instances working from, at best, your estimation of what's going to be needed and where the market's going. And so how do you do that? You know, well, we, vision and mission will help, um, but culture will be important, and we'll talk about that. It turns out there's another really critical thing, too. Imagine that everybody has a different culture. Do you think that will help? actually bring them together? Of course not. So let's use a really crass analogy. How many people are Red Sox fans? Come on, it's Boston, for God's sake. We're in the World <laughs> Series. It's got to be more than that. OK. Well, obviously, there are a few people who would be glued to their TV. So we have a few Boston Red Sox fans. Imagine if you started following the Red Sox, and they decided to change their culture, to my point about consistency. And they decided, yeah, they're bored with, with, with uh, baseball. We're actually all going to go play basketball. I mean. It, that's a bizarre example, right? But the reality is the cult following that the Red Sox ha has is Red Sox Nation. It's a very critical piece of why the sports franchise is so valuable. It's a culture. It's literally something that brings the entire Red Sox Nation together around World Series and has us doing crazy things in the streets at night, which hopefully will carry on for a little while and we win it. Uh, so it's really a critical potential way that you can harness the energy in the same way that I've talked about you know, a sports fan, imagine that same energy in your business. If you could get everybody that excited about you, instead of winning the World Series, achieving your vision and mission. 
and all rallying together with the same passion and intent that you see in the streets of Boston this week. That is what culture can do for you. It can get everybody pulling with all the intent to achieve the same thing. And that is so powerful. My own analogy, rather than using a sports analogy, is as follows. If you imagine that everybody has a thread and they could all go take that thread any direction they wanted, it would be very dangerous if they did. You just end up with a mess. But instead, imagine if you were really clear about what the vision and mission of the company is and how you want them to work together and how you could actually all twine those threads together and they could turn that into a rope that everybody could pull on, you'd start getting people pulling in the same direction. And you'd have something really valuable. That's what culture can do for you. So now let's talk about, does it really work that way? Well, you have to look out and imagine you're going to be one of the Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 or Global 1000. And what does culture do for you? It turns out it has a huge impact. I've already mentioned Google. But if you go and look at any of the top five companies, and I picked out the tech top five, and by the way, this list has evolved from last year. Some, some companies like Zappos that I talked about have been acquired or some others have fallen off here. But they still basically show the same thing. It turns out that since 1998, companies in the Fortune 100 that are considered the best to work for are always overachieving other companies. In fact, by a significant margin, by nearly triple. They're on average achieving over 10% returns per annum, whereas the rest of the Fortune, or sorry, the S&P 500 is achieving about 3.3. This stuff translates to the top and bottom line. It translates to value. So yes, it's a soft subject. Yes, it's a hard one because you can't just write down bits of, and, and go through checklists and say, I've got a culture. But this is why it's important. In fact, if you look at this, the 100 best companies to work for consistently outperform the stock market interest indexes by 300%, consistently. So it's why I really encourage you to pay attention early on, because it's something that once you put the roots down for and build consistently, it becomes a platform for your success. So of course, um, my favorite uh, uh, kinds of CEOs have real quotes around this, and this is one I love, which is the Merck CEO. Uh, Richard Clark, who said, culture eats strategy for lunch. And there's plenty you can read on this. But his point is this, that you can have a great strategy, and you can have everybody focused on it. You could have all the clarity of what it's all about. But if nobody's actually going to work together effectively, and there's no harmony in the team to go and execute it, it's meaningless. It's never going to happen. And so this is why culture eats strategy for lunch. And so we're going to talk about how important this is, um, and obviously talk about how do we, we put it in place. Now, I had one entrepreneur come up to me the first year I did this, and he said, I loved your lecture. It was really inspirational. But what is it again? <laughs> when I was talking about culture. And I thought it was a great question. You know, what, what the hell is culture? It's very hard to define. But I've spent a bunch of time thinking about it, and I've decided it's simple. Culture is your operating system to run your apps on. Or looking at it another way, it's really the platform to empower your people. You can't write apps without having an operating system. You can't run a company without having a platform culture to build on. It's really that basic. OK, some of you aren't techies, so that's probably not good enough for you. But it is that fundamental. So let's keep going. It's certainly multifaceted. There's no question that one of the things that challenges people about culture is you can't just put your arms around it and say, OK, you've got one. 
there's a famous quote, and we, we um, always joke about it, which is that one of the big pharma companies, it wasn't Merck, uh, but it's, it's because Merck made the statement, said, oh yeah, I really like what, what uh, the, the Merck CEO said, I gotta get me a culture. Went to his HR director and said, could you get me a culture? <laughs> How do you think that went down? It's just unfortunately not like that. Culture is not something you can go get. You can't just buy one of them. So what is it? Well, again, simplifying it to a broader sense, it's how you do business. It's not what business you're in, it's how you do business every day. It's the way in which you actually, as an organization, embody things like the way you treat customers, the way you work with your team, the way you engage with partners, even the way you deal with suppliers. Because if you treat your suppliers in a certain way, uh, obviously they'll respond to you in a certain way. And if you're constantly cutting them uh, back and, and, and squeezing every margin out of them, then the day that your supply chain dries up because you've got huge customer demand, I doubt they're gonna increase production for you just because you're, you're uh, squeezing margins from them. I mean, these things have real impact. So you have to think about from day one, what is this, the personality you want in your startup and how will you embody that in your organization and your execution? So again, from a, a few years of doing this now and running workshops actually all over the world, I had my best uh, example of this the other day in East Germany where I was running a workshop. And uh, there, frankly, people really don't have the resources that we're lucky enough to have at places like Harvard and MIT here. And um, so we sat down with basically nothing in the way of infrastructure. And I was giving the, the workshop you know, without the wonderful stage that I have here. And people said, okay, we really have, first of all, you know, an immediate challenge, which is we don't have the infrastructure to build our company around. You know, we can't get to customers the way you do in the US. And we're really struggling, for example, to just get the basics of you know, our first value proposition built because we can't find talent, it's just hard. So I heard all these can't do's. I said, well, okay, what do you believe you can do? And long story short, I found out that most of those companies had started and done what they considered a Series A on less than a quarter of a million dollars. So what we consider a seed, they considered a Series A. So one of their clear convictions was that they could do more with less. And it was very obvious to me they could. In fact, uh, that was a cultural value that uh, some of them were, were embodying, that they felt like they literally were able to be successful because of their frugal and very tough situation, and that they'd, they'd, uh, they were going to use that as a basis to be more successful and, and to compete. I'm not saying that that's going to be the case for everybody here, but it was interesting to start with. And what we, we did was we worked on this framework. And this is an example of how I hope you could start to develop your culture. And like everything I do, I don't want to give you the answer, as I said, I want to give you a framework. And so what I encourage you to do is think about just one thing that you want to build to start off with, which is a shared value system. So as a team, what would be the, the set of values that you most believe in? Is it, for example, openness and honesty? Or is it, for example, empowering the customer? Or is it, as the, friends, the guys in East Germany said, doing more with less? Whatever those shared values are, whatever the beliefs that you have are that are personal to you, that you can turn into guiding principles, there will be, they will be a great starting point for you. Now, the next couple of bullets are very important. Culture is not something you can just write out and stick up on the wall and say, we've got one. Even if you developed it yourself, it's about how you live it. How do you lead it? How do you model it every day? And then how do you turn it into execution? And in particular, the two things I want you to try to remember are culture only works if you can actually get people to take responsibility for living it every day. So for example, if you decide that it's incredibly important for you to deliver value every day, then you've got to figure out how you live that internally. 
it's unlikely that you're going to want to travel first class, for example, and, and send people around you know, staying at expensive hotels. Because that culture is incongruous with you trying to deliver value to your customers. And an example of that I'll bring up later is, uh, for those of you here, when I did the workshop with Andy Jassy of Amazon, who runs Amazon Cloud Services, is how that pervaded throughout Amazon. And it's a reason why today Amazon is still one of the cheapest places to buy everything. Because from day one, they decided that was a cultural value. And they wanted to live it, and they made people responsible for it. And they literally, every day, are looking at how people perform against that. Now, there's another important little word here called accountability. It turns out lots of people can be responsible for things, but only one person can be accountable for it. So for the culture in a company, the CEO is the one person who's accountable, because culture comes from the top. But for elements of it, or anything that you're executing on, it's also important you find whoever's accountable. The biggest problem that happens in small companies is generally that everybody feels like they should be doing everything. That works for a while. But as you grow, it becomes incredibly important to get the single person for any function, whether it's customer service, or whether it's, for example, you know, sales, or whether it's more specifically product delivery, or whether you define it as quality, whatever it might be. You've got to have owners for things. That's the accountability piece. And culture is a piece of how you do that. It's a, a piece of then what you that, that then follows, which is when you have people who are accountable, how do you actually either celebrate success or engage with and deal with failure? These are all questions that I encourage you to ask yourself. What will you do to encourage success? What will you do to, for example, deal with failure? So this is the framework. Like everything, it'll be up on the site, so don't worry if you didn't catch it all. And I'm going to start to lead you through some examples to bring it to life, because it's not that easy. It's, as I said, it's, it's soft stuff, but it's, it, that makes it hard to do sometimes. So what's an example? If you get your values right, you will hopefully enable people and empower them. You will enable them, for example, to make decisions because you've said, OK, we are going to deliver the best value. That means that people will start thinking about they're making trade, when they're making trade-offs, do they spend all their time on producing the highest quality goods? Probably not. They'll probably figure out how to get the least, the least amount of quality to meet the need, obviously to deliver the, the specific function, but at the lowest uh, possible price. And that will be continuously evolving as they make decisions around whatever it is they're delivering their products or who they pick as partners and so forth. But those things, once you've made those decisions, can be very empowering. It means that people don't have to keep coming back to you and saying, oh, what should we price things at? How should we build things? Who should we pick as, as uh, you know, sales channels, et cetera? Because they're in your values. You've defined those things, as I gave you the example with Amazon. Amazon. They also might be very personal things. They might be things like the way you want to interact with each other as a team. And if you say, for example, we really have a strong belief in honesty, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a basic value. But how will you show it? Will you, for example, encourage people to be very proactively honest? You could say, oh yeah, that's a great idea. But let me tell you what happens in the real world. The real world is, one of your team screws up. Now, do you tell them? Well, if you're proactively honest, the answer is yes. You have to try to find a way to tell them. The idea is that obviously you're going to find some way to tell them so that they don't do it again. That's the proactive part about it. It's not that you're being dishonest if you don't tell them. but if it's a value of yours that you really want to help each other and you really believe that the way to be you know, moving forward and staying at the lead or the forefront of something is to be the best at something, then screwing up is something that's a, a learning opportunity. And so it doesn't have to be negative. It doesn't have to be criticism. But it's an opportunity to be very honest and to help somebody in whatever circumstance. And if you have the other two values, and these are just examples. I'm not saying they're ones that you would use. 
of respect and integrity. And you can do that res with respect to people. And they always know it's not personal when you critique them, that you give them feedback. Uh, and that because you respect individuals and that they have integrity and you have integrity, and those are values you believe on, you could have any conversation. You could have anybody come up to you as the CEO or as the receptionist and say, hey, guess what? We had somebody come through for an interview yesterday. They, they didn't feel like we were really on our game. I wonder whether you as the receptionist could um, just make sure that when you greet somebody, you've looked on the, the, uh, you know, the calendar to see who it is who's coming and say, hello, Marnie, it's really nice to meet you. And they'll be immediately surprised to say they know your name. That's an exact conversation I had with the receptionist, by the way. Uh, now, the good news is that same receptionist said to me, Michael, it's really nice that you pointed that out. But by the way, you didn't clear up the conference room yesterday uh, that I had to take them into. What a great bit of feedback. And you know what? I didn't. And we're a small company. And there weren't three people to do that. And it would have been easy for me to clear it up. And so guess what? We made it a simple thing that we cleared up behind ourselves. Guess what created and, and that created in the way of a culture? And openness. Anybody talking to anybody about things that we thought we could do better. And that's the kind of cultural simple thing you can do as a startup that might make a difference. In fact, if you use uh, the example I just gave you, lots of those little things add up to big sense of community and collective interest in getting great outcomes. So I don't know what yours are. I told you right up front that this is not a workshop where I'm going to bring you answers. You have to figure out what your values are. They have to be authentic to you and authentic enough that you can live them every day. You know, coming up with somebody's you know, value statement that you pulled out from Google and saying, OK, that's going to be ours because they're really cool, isn't going to work if you can't live them every day. They've got to be authentic to you. All right. Um, at this point, we're lucky enough to have a, a chance to hear what uh, Salsify did to actually develop their values. So um, uh, Jason, I think you're up again. Yeah, I've got to be proactively honest and say I hate, um, I hate this section. I remember being here uh, last year, and, and um, Michael went through this, and my reaction was that these, you should put any values up on the chart, and I want all of them, right? And so I feel like if you limit yourself to a few, does that mean that we're not honest and that we're, you know, we're not authentic? And, and so it, I, have, I struggle with this, with the value section. Um, but with that said, they, they, it actually was really important, a really important part of the culture for us. One of the reasons why we started a company was that we wanted to make sure that we were going to be around folks that shared the same values and, and, um, and a lot of times I think these end up getting formed by your past experiences at, at other companies and you, want to, you really want to have, um, really want to make sure that you don't repeat the, the mistakes of the past. So I look at these, I realize every single one of these is cliche. I realize every single one of these is, a, is yes, I want that feature, but, it, but in fact these are things that, that do drive how we operate day to day. And we do open and constant communication. We, you know, we don't like every startup out there, we don't have offices. Everybody is, you know, is looking at one another. We're working together. We do celebrate small victories. In fact, we, we kind of force ourselves to have small victories. If, if I feel like product development is going too slow, not, not too slow like velocity, but we're not delivering value in discrete enough chunks to get value to a customer, let's, let's create programs to actually go and encourage that, and then we can celebrate those things. That goes to the whole measurable, achievable goals. And not just in product, but in the way that we operate marketing and sales. I mean, we, we pick the wrong metrics all the time, and if we can't actually measure them, then we'll change them week to week until we find a couple that work. I mean, I, for a while we were measuring you know, activity. Do we measure calls? And then that wasn't working, and we ended up measuring demos per week, and we finally found something that worked. And I think the one that is most important is empowerment. A again, I know it's 
what everybody wants to say, but I do think it, it affects the way that we work. If, if there is a decision that can be pushed down to somebody else within the organization, then it's got to be pushed down. Just across the board, every place we can do it. If there's a, if there's a decision, we don't have a chief architect where if, you know, that every decision has to be vetted. If there's something in the product and an individual engineer can make it, then do it. Right? We trust that person enough to make those choices. If they make it wrong, it's not the end of the world, we'll, we'll fix it. You know, on, the, on the marketing side, I, half the time I don't know what's going on in marketing because I know Rob is pushing those decisions down to, to Emily and Steve. And I just think that is probably, to me, the most important cultural value that we had, which was if you can have a decision, you can push it down in New York, then just do it and don't look back. Um, and I, I think that served us well. Um, so, Those are great examples. Now, I happen to have a bit of an inside track here. So uh, maybe, Rob, might, you, you might want to answer this. You did actually hire somebody, uh, Emily, who was... Was she an intern originally? Uh, yeah, she was uh, the first non-engineering hire that we had. Um, and, she started as an intern. And because I was, I was watching the progress, I mean, she was like very struck by your value. She, was, she thought the culture was a big part of why she joined. How's that worked out? What's happened? And, and how have the values steered? Um, yeah, she's a great example. So she's, so we're, you know, we're, we're a tech company, right? Um, all of us have various engineering backgrounds. Uh, and Emily is a journalism major from BU. So she's like really the first you know, non-engineering hire that, that, that we had. Um, and she'd been an intern for me at a previous company for, for one summer. And uh, I think you know, these days, if you're coming out of college, um, like she was telling me, like most of her friends, they go to, they go to a big company. Um, they're told what to do on a day-to-day -day basis, right? They're like, all right, this is the thing that you've got to do as an intern. Uh, you know, write this up, get it to me by the end of the week. And then you know, the, the boss is checking in on them every, every single day. And the way that you know, we started operating with Emily is like, all right, Emily, you, know, you have to actually do like, all of the visual design for this news newsletter that's going to go out. Like, we want you to do the writing. We want you to do the visual design. We want you to take a stab at you know, the whole thing from start to finish. And just like, when you feel like you've got something that you want to show us, like, we'll go over it together, right? And so that's how we operated. And um, so she did that for newsletters. And then she started working with blog posts. And then she started doing um, now pretty much like anything that needs to be done in the company from like a writing or design or you know website perspective uh, and she's just gets, gets it all done almost with almost no uh, no instruction from us so it's worked out just incredibly well so she's gone full-time now right oh yeah she's definitely gone full-time I mean it's the the ability to you know creative things is, are really hard in general right they take a lot of time um, there's a million judgment calls that have to be made and you know writing and communication visually and um, otherwise, I think is one of the most challenging things in general, right? I mean, we've, I don't know how many of you have had experience just trying to get yourself across in a blog or, you know, putting together really great slides. Like, I mean, Michael's been working on this for years and it's come together really well, but it's, it's really, really hard to get ideas across, right? So to have somebody who, um, you, know, you're, you, you know, I feel like really proud to help having developed this confidence in her, but for, to have somebody who you can, really rely on to generate a lot of the uh, words that you're going to be using to represent yourselves in a company and generate a lot of the uh, visual um, ideas that you're going to be able to represent yourselves in the company and to just you know, know that that's taken care of uh, is just incredible. So I mean, just, just in terms of it's a great operating strategy, but it's also a great way to grow people, right? I mean, she's 22 years old and just really indispensable to, to a lot of the things that we do right now. Um, so I, I, think, I think it really helps grow people when you give them that, that space. So I asked Rob that question because um, sitting as I was observing this stuff, it was a fantastic example. Thank you, Rob. 
of exactly how culture makes a difference. If you can imagine Emily joining and being uh, in a command and control culture where the CEO made every single decision and the only thing they were going to give was the latitude to go off and develop you know, an idea within a very specifically defined uh, template, I don't think Emily would have stayed and I don't think Emily would have become the success that she's become. And if you think I'm joking about how this kind of culture pervades, there's a certain CEO of a company that um, just did the America's Cup, uh, won the America's Cup, who still to this day approves every piece of copy that goes out on the ads. That's a command and control culture. And it's been, I'll, everybody knows who it is, it's been at Oracle since Larry founded it. It's just the way he runs things. It's not wrong, it's an extremely successful company. It's just very different. This is a culture that's deciding right from the get-go that it wants to be very empowered, that the Salsify team wants to enable people right out of college to go be as creative as they possibly can, take as much responsibility as they can, and they're flourishing. So they're very different examples. One's not right, one's not wrong. They're just to the point I'm trying to make, decisions you should make early on, because you will attract very different people to those two kinds of cultures. Yep. I think a lot of this, when you boil it all down, it's about trust. It's about looking at people as stakeholders. It's about synergistic forces that, you know, one plus one is greater than two. You know, being vested in people, being interested and interesting. And I think a lot of people throw around the word integrity. And you know I come from behavioral health, which this is a huge topic in my field. You know, there has to be some synchronicity with what you say and what you do. Yep. And it is really learn it, live it, love it, own it. And, well and you, have to, you have to model it every day. And it's like a living, breathing organism that you have to nurture and constantly cultivate. And it is very much top down. Very, very well said. I couldn't have put it better myself. So, the, you know, the articulation of what you're, you're uh, saying is the piece that we're trying to get to here. So if every one of you, by the way, um, related to the word trust there, that might be a great example of a value that you decide to, to create. The hard part is operationalizing those things and defining trust. For example, uh, I love the idea of trusting people, but there's also a certain point at which you have to say, okay, how far can you trust this person? If they don't have the experience and knowledge to do the job, or if they, for example, don't have the credentials to do it, can you really trust them? Because you don't want them to fail by default, if you're setting them up for failure because you've trusted them, for example, to go into a government institution and do business and they don't have clearance or the experience of how to do it, you're gonna set them up for failure. But by contrast, if you can establish what are the things that they could be successful at and give them full trust in those things, then you can set them up for success. So even a simple word like trust needs to be defined. And in fact, I'm about to use an exact example of that. So the team at Salsify told me right off the bat that they had been very successful at Endeka, and as a result of that, they didn't want to just hire Indeca uh, people. So they used a word with me, which is diversity. Now, what does diversity mean to you? Anybody want to give me a, a clue? What, what does diversity is, mean to anybody in the audience? The back. Well, to me, diversity means having a good range of experience and people in the workplace. Fantastic. So range and experience of people. Anybody else got an idea of what diversity might mean to them? Go ahead. Um, for me, I'd want it to be actually like a range of ideas. Range of ideas. That's a fantastic input. Anybody else? What was that? Feel free to shout out. Go ahead. I think um, diversity also comes with the stratification of age. Great. Right. Age so, diversity. So, yeah, the age diversity in their thinking methodologies is really presented a lot. Awesome.
So it might be youth and experience, which I'm a big believer in combining, for example. So, so we had three completely different ideas, all of which I think are excellent, but all of which meant diversity to the various different people in the room. And we had you know, African-American people, and uh, where are you from? French and English and Kentucky and, and the young lady here, where are you from? California. California. Okay, so nobody mentioned geography. Nobody mentioned race or religion. Uh, maybe they were afraid to do it, but by the way, that's usually what people mean by diversity. Uh, so one of the things I encourage you to do is when you decide that there's a value or an, an important thing that you want in your organization, get really explicit about it. Because I thought there was some really good input here, but we totally missed, for example, some basic things that we might want to have. Now, in fact, it turns out the team actually meant they didn't want to hire everybody from Indeca. How are we doing, by the way? <laughs> uh, we're doing well outside engineering. Not so well inside engineering so far. But I mean, I think it's, it's one of the reasons why it was so valuable to be explicit about it early on is because we knew it was going to be a hard one. Because we have such a level of comfort with, I and mean, we tend to be sort of level of comfort, what's easy, what's familiar. And we knew this was going to be a hard one for us to sort of go out there and force ourselves to bring in those additional opinions. But we know how valuable it is. And I mean, I think it's one of the things that we've spent an inordinate amount of time over the last six months talking to Michael, talking to our other uh, investors, talking amongst ourselves, talking with our team, and just saying, how do we bring in those other perspectives? How do we find those people who, who bring that diversity, that diversity of age, that diversity of experience? But really, I mean, what we were looking for in terms of diversity was different backgrounds, different ideas, and sort of a different shared, sort of bringing more into the shared experience that we had as an organization. Fantastic. How effective do you think your team is going to be at making breakthroughs and coming up with new ideas and challenging either, each other and literally creating new opportunities if you all think the same way? Can you say more? Uh, not at all. Why like not? zero because well, I mean, there's no creativity. I mean, you see this in command and control cultures where not only is a task delegated, and I've actually even said this to a manager I had. I said, you get to delegate the task, and when it gets done, you don't get to delegate the process. So if you're delegating product and process, there's going to be no divergence of thought. Right. I mean, basically, you just want lemmings, you know, automatons. You don't want human beings. Yep. I mean, and th so I think that's what you should hire then. You should. Exactly. So it might be that you need that, for example, in a certain function. It might be if, if you're running a call center and you've got you know, hundreds of people and the job is very well defined and you've got to have people who are capable of running you know, nine to five on just a script. Okay, I get it. Then you know, they may all need to be vanilla. But if you absolutely have the challenge that most startups do, which is you're trying to scope out an opportunity in a brand new market where you're making a breakthrough where nothing has, like this has ever been done before and there's something fundamental that you're doing that's different, you're going to need different perspectives. And the more you have, the more likely you are to challenge each other to come up with the thing that is going to make an impact. And so diversity to me means having the diversity of talent, whether it's age, experience, background, no matter what it is, that can actually be uniquely able to solve the particular problem you're going after. That's just what it means to me. It doesn't mean to say it's what for you. But it was great when we had this conversation with Salsify because I think that's why they're going to be successful. They absolutely immediately identified that this is a strength that they can all work together because they've done it before, but it's also potentially a weakness. And they immediately said, let's do something about it. That is what I mean by, as a startup, thinking about your culture early and being smart about how it can make a difference. 
OK, next question is, yeah, this is all getting too hard for me. <laughs> it's too soft. I can't figure it out. It's difficult to measure. There are too many other priorities I've got to do. I've got to raise money. I've got to build a product. Ah, what if I just kick this can down the road? Let's do a government sub um, exercise and uh, kick the subsidy down the road. We um, have looked at this many times. I've seen it in many startups. And in fact, it's sort of the default of what happens. Well, the good news is you can get away with it. You'll probably be absolutely fine. Nobody will really tell you that you're doing anything wrong because it's not a short-term thing. It doesn't have any impact in the immediate term, except some of the things that we're talking about here that might seem obvious to people who are attentive to it. So the good news is, you know, whatever good deeds you do will still be good deeds. Whatever good practices you have will be good practices. But what won't happen is that you won't get best practices developed, and you won't get people to institutionalize those, and you won't get people to do the things that, for example, you know, uh, even in a, in a social sense, Jeremy was pointing out there, which is to say, hey, guess what? We'll have a social hour, you know, a Klondike hour. Uh, and so that's the thing that's, that's interesting about this. It's sort of an opportunity to take something that's unharnessed uh, and harness it. And the bad news is, if you have bad habits, they just perpetuate. Nobody does anything about them. You just don't pay any attention to them until one day they really trip you up and you find out that, hey, you never explicitly told anybody in your company that you have a need to pay attention to, to uh, customers and that, in fact, you want to put customers first and that you want that to be so extreme that you'll do, for, what, for example, whatever it takes. So guess what? When a customer runs into a problem and it feels like it's sort of outside the jurisdiction of that person, they don't escalate it because they feel like it's not their job. And the next thing you know, you have some unhappy customer that propagates and you've got a problem on your hands. So this is my startup secret for tonight. It's simple. Culture will define you even if you don't define it. And what happens to startups is very quickly they get a reputation. And the reputation is basically how you're behaving. And if you don't take control of it, it's just like your brand, it's just like your messaging, it's just like your positioning, it's just like everything else. It will get defined by other people. So if you want to have a culture that stands for something, declare it early. Don't wait until it's defined by how the people see you. So the follow-on from this is pretty obvious, but it's super important. Culture comes from you. Now, I said it comes from the top. In a small startup, you know, might be only three, five, whatever it is, people. You are, at that point, the organization that will create the initial culture. And uh, I said it's also, you know, very much from the CEO. As you get bigger, it's very much from the top. But the top isn't uh, literally always one person. It's how the originating team models behavior. And remember, I said, this is the one thing you want to stay consistent on. So how are you going to stay consistent on it if you don't define it early? Well, obviously, you've got to figure out how you really focus on um, valuing it, uh, sorry, modeling it throughout. Because culture really only gets valued by one thing, and that is how much you consistently reinforce it. So let me give you an example. In one of the first mistakes I made as an entrepreneur, very early on, I was running international for my business. And I would fly around the world and uh, deal with customers all over the place. And I didn't actually spend any time to figure out how each of those customers wanted to be treated consistently. And we ended up with all sorts of problems. We ended up with customers who thought that their pricing was unfair because you know, we, we didn't normalize it regionally. We felt like their service was different. And then the first thing that happened to us, which was really rather scary, was that a very big customer came along to us, Hewlett Packard, as it turns out, who were at, was actually also um, who, whose products we were using. And they said, we can't do business with you. And I'm like, why not? 
because we don't know how to do business with you. You do business with us differently in Geneva than you do with us in Colorado and in Boise. And um, by the way, we want to do business with you in Africa too. And you just, you don't look like one company. You look like a whole bunch of different organizations. And it was a real like wake up call to me because I'd never even thought about it. It was like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> how do we fix that? And so it turned out the answer was actually to go around and visit all of HP's divisions. And uh, this is way back, this is 30 years ago or so. It turns out if you went to HP as I did, everywhere from um, their offices in San Diego where they built plotters or uh, Colorado, Fort Collins, Colorado where they built computers or Boise where I think they did storage, Corvallis, they did calculators. The one thing that really, really stuck with me, it was one HP. Now HP isn't a glorified company today, but in Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard's day, HP was known for its culture. And you could tell that wherever you went in the world, HP was one culture. They had, for example, some very strong beliefs about management. They were the guys who started with this notion of management by walking around. So anybody, for example, who was a manager was expected to be out of their office understanding what was going on. And just by watching and observing that and realizing, hey, they're going to be my customer, I realized how important it was to have a culture. The end of that story, by the way, is that they became our largest single customer in the world. We became their largest partner for what was CAD CAM systems in the day, and they ended up OEMing our product as what became HP Draft. It's a simple example, but it was all to do with culture. And it took me a while to figure out that lesson. So what I'm trying to say to you here is that this consistency has impact on everything you do. And if you can get it right, it'll impact your relationships with your customers, with your people, and with in indeed the value that you're building as your business. So it's super important. And I want to bring an example that's more current to, to the fore. Most of you probably, um, actually, how many people have bought shoes from Zappos? Quite a lot. What was the best thing about Zappos? Returns. Right? It was easy. Nobody cared whether they got loads of shoes. Zappos figured out how to make that model work. Meantime, there was a company that was going basically out of business into bankruptcy, American Apparel. Why? Because they had many policies, not just around returns, that people hated. And their bureaucracy internally was well documented, well understood, and basically they didn't have a culture. They didn't have a customer-centric culture. They had no culture. It became very internally focused, and it drove them into bankruptcy. It was very dysfunctional. By contrast, Zappos was one of the fastest growing companies to go from zero to a billion dollars. I mean, just think about that for a second. What do you think came into play there? Clearly, one defined culture as being customer-centric. And how could they do great things that would cost them money, like take returns back? And another one wasn't even focused on that. They were so bureaucratic and so internally focused that they became dysfunctional and went into bankruptcy. This stuff really makes a difference. It's why early on, what I encourage you to do is to think about which do you want? Do you want to end up with a barrier that is dissipating or distracting or dividing or causing you politics and ultimately, as I call it, damning you? Or do you want an enabler, something that unifies people, that clarifies what your values are, that, that is very clearly empowering to people, the way we just heard Salsify talk about it, that enables somebody like Emily to flourish, uh, and that enables people to act without having to constantly come back and check in with you, for example, that really lives, uh, allows people to flow. One results in restarts, and the other gets great results. So I would say culture is often defined by its absence, what I call the unculture. And so my next startup secret for you is that startup uncultures are uncool. And I'm going to be really honest about it. It's shocking to me how many startups there are that spend zero time on culture. I'm shocked that this room is so full tonight, because the first session we gave uh, was not, well, actually, it probably was full, but that was for a different reason. But I still find that this is the hardest subject to get people to pay attention to. But it really is uncool. 
Think about this as one of the most fundamental things that costs you nothing. There's no investment required in terms of dollars to get right that can help you, instead of get become a, one of those restarts, to become a really results-oriented company. Okay, so let's keep going with the practical frameworks. How do we develop some of these guiding principles? I'm going to turn this into a bit more of a Q&A session because we've got uh, a bit of time to do this. So people struggle with this, and, and the best way to do it is just come up with a bunch of questions. Get in a room together and ask yourselves some of these kinds of questions. So I'm just going to pick one of these. Do you think you want to judge yourself by results or effort? Does anybody here care to weigh in on that? Go ahead. Uh, well, I think that uh, it's very important to have a result because it doesn't matter how much effort you put in it. You need to figure out how to get to the point. Uh, because sometimes you can work a lot, but not towards the goal, for example. Yep, and not to get there. Uh, so eventually, I think that the goal is most important thing that you, know, you, know, you have. Yep. And you need to put it ahead yourself. So I think that's a fantastic idea. Is it right or wrong? Anybody else care to comment? Go ahead. So I guess it depends on who you like, who the result or the um, effort is towards. Like, if it's an employee who's been putting in a lot of effort, I think it's really important to recognize that and um, to give them a pat on the back and say, you know, like maybe these are the things that you can work on. And um, you know, as you encourage, you'll get better results. Um, but um, if it's working with a client and uh, you are not delivering a result. Right, then that client's not going to be happy no matter how much effort you put in. So I think it depends on like, who this is about. But uh, effort is definitely something that needs to be um, acknowledged and supported and respected because, you know, like, yeah, you've got to value the person and what they're doing. Okay. So uh, we've got another hand up the back there. I thought that was really well said. And it's caused me to skip ahead to a slide because this conversation is going in a, in a good direction. Yeah, I was Go just, ahead. just going to echo what the gentleman said earlier. And in our organization, we celebrate both results and effort. So by results, we celebrate um, small su successes, as I think someone earlier had mentioned. And for effort, uh, we both recognize and reward effort because we think that's really valuable to our, to our results. So I, I like all what I'm hearing. Does anybody else have anything they want to weigh in on? Um, can I just hold on one second while I, I'm going to bring in a, a thought for a second, actually. Um, I'll give a framework so we th think about it. So there is no right or wrong answer here. What's good is this discussion. If the three of you were in a room and you had to work together, I bet you'd come up with some really interesting thoughts about what values that you wanted to have in your business um, if you were going to be a results-oriented culture. So I, I took your lead. I said, OK, we're going to be company X, and we're going to be a results-oriented culture. What can go wrong with that? I'm going to give you a very real example, and I'm not going to name the company because it did go wrong. Uh, the company put this up as one of their value statements. Results are everything. So what do you think happened as a result of that? You're laughing. Do you want to jump in? Well, it's just negating everything that goes into creating a result. But w w why is people, that a bad thing? If, I mean, we people, heard up the front here. People that effort everything you've been speaking. Well, it ignores culture. It ignores culture. It ignores culture. Yeah. But I think we've got a pretty informed gentleman up the front here who yes. still feels like results is, is important. So I don't want to put you at odds. Well, Resu I think, well, you want to you you go at this? Okay, have, a, have a go. <laughs> do, do you want to say more? Yeah. Say more? Yeah, why did you think results are, it's got to be all about results? Well, I was thinking uh, 
one more time after I finish my talking. And, okay. Uh, because so you're rethinking now. Otherwise, like yeah. failure is very important as well. Yep. Sometimes uh, some people just try to cross an ocean, um, like you know, and fail somewhere in the middle. But anyway, it's like effort, and uh, they put it so. I'm thinking actually right now, but fantastic. Um, overall results. Go ahead. Lots of hands going up here, so let's keep the discussion going. I think uh, I think speaking about results and efforts, it's, it's kind of like speaking about someone that's s spiritual and someone that's religious. Right. So you can't have one without the other. You have to have efforts to yield results, and you have to have results to show off your efforts. Okay. So what I hear both you and the lady at the back um, saying is that, in fact, um, I think, and don't, don't let me speak for you, is that you believe in and in this discussion. You want to reward results and effort. Is that fair? You're nodding your head. Anybody else? We've got another hand going up here. Um, I agree that you, to some extent, you need to maybe value both. If you're just about results, you will neglect the person trying so hard and disengage them. But if you put everything in effort, if you overemphasize effort, you might have people hanging around the office just for the sake of it, right? Yeah. Um, and I would just, personally, I would reward, reward results and um, effort if it, like, improves the organization, if, if the effort uh, makes you learn or makes the organization learn. So I would value myself, I mean, I would uh, evaluate somebody if he or she has good results or he or she brought some learning to the organization through her efforts. Okay, one more, and then we'll we'll uh, get back to this discussion. Sorry, where the front was first. Um, I feel like this kind of like you can liken it almost to like education and teaching children yeah. when we're like taking a test, right? If it's really result oriented, I mean, sure they could get the result, but they might hate the process, and eventually, I guess, then like in a business, that might kill the culture. Well but said. Like you might get somebody through an exam, but they hate learning, and they've they they've managed to pass the test, but they're never going to actually go on to a career. Okay, so. This is just one question I brought up here. And we haven't even got to the bottom of this. We are probably even a tenth of the way through it. Look at the dialogue it's generating. And the, the dialogue, by the way, is the important thing. And that's what I wanted to get to here, is that if you do nothing other than take away one thing from this session, it's a bunch of questions to go and figure out what's important to you and what are the things that you really value that you want to have as part of your business. Because if you don't get those together and you don't get synchronicity on those, then you'll have your inconsistency among yourselves, let alone in the company, as how you're going to build it out with all your other stakeholders. And so this is just a simple discussion. But by the way, I have many more. However, I've jumped forward. And I'm going to give you an example of how very real this is. Uh, it turns out that this was the statement that the company made. And you know, the question was, ultimately, really? Results at all costs? I mean, it, it just it caused some really weird behaviors in this startup. Um, really weird. And um, you know, I was watching it and fortunately didn't get to invest in it, but it was like you could have watched the comedy of errors. Because what happened was they talked about things like, you know, okay, how we win customers, we don't care how we do it, we're gonna break glass, we're gonna do whatever it is. And the CEO, by the way, was a successful CEO before, very successful actually. And he's started another business since then which is gonna be more successful. But what are the costs? I mean, will you sacrifice profit? Sure. I, I get that might be make sense. You know, you, you often start as a startup by having unprofitable customer relations. But should you sacrifice, for example, you know, profit for market share? Maybe. Yeah, maybe you really want to go after market share, so that would be a good trade-off. What about people? What if, you, if you're burning out your people in this process because you're doing whatever it takes to, 
to win these customers and serve them, and it's, you're making no money, but now your people are getting burned out doing it. Hmm, gets a little tricky. Okay, now is where it starts to get really interesting. What about you decided you'd ship a product at the end of the quarter, which actually you didn't have, because you needed to make the quarter, because you needed to pay everybody's salaries, et cetera, et cetera. I can see the understanding that you, know, you needed to get the results, but now you're crossing into ethics, never mind legals. And that's exactly what happened in this company. People felt empowered to do whatever it took to get results, and they ended up shipping nothing more than effectively an empty box to a customer in order to try to get some revenue. And they promised the customer all sorts of things after the end of the quarter to try to get that made up. You can't recover from this stuff. Once you've made those kinds of decisions and you have that kind of culture, you've got a problem. And this company did not make it. And unfortunately, it was just a cultural issue. They never sat back and decided what they really meant. Did they really mean results at all costs? Or were there some real trade-offs that they were, were uh, willing to do? So um, I would simply say that this is not something that, like everything we've just talked about, there's an any answer from. The real trick is to actually go to uh, figuring out uh, where it is that you are going to draw the line and what is uh, important to you in, ter in terms of developing your, your guiding principles. So I picked out one question there. Here's a bunch more that will all be on the site. Um, the uh, one that I'm going to talk a little bit more about later on is this uh, sort of challenge of do you put your people first or do you put your customer first? It turns out that's one that comes up a lot in startups. Uh, and most people will say, oh, no, no, the customer comes first. Let me give you my own view on it. This is another and. doesn't mean to say you'll agree with this. I don't think you can make your customers happy unless you've got your people happy. And so in a startup, I believe it's incredibly important to figure out how to help your team in whatever pursuit they're in and ensure that they can be set up for success. Because guess what? When they get on the phone with the customer and they're really excited to talk to them because they're feeling successful and they're feeling like they've got a great environment, that will be infectious. And it'll be what will carry the day in many instances with the customer. If you've got a lousy work environment, you've got people who are unhappy, even if you've got happy customers, at some point, that engine, which is your team, is going to conk out. So that's just one, one example of something that, that I would give. But there was a guy who uh, many people will know the minute I put the picture up, who had a very clear example of a particular trade-off he made in his culture very early on. And it was the one we were talk start starting to talk about earlier, profit versus value-driven. His name was Jeff Bezos. Those of you who haven't seen this picture, right off the bat, Bezos was absolutely clear he wanted to be a value-driven culture. And he went and cut a door out and made it his desk to make the point that this is not a company that wants to waste money. What do you think the impact of that was? I don't have to tell you. You already know. Where do you go today when you want to get something cheap? Amazon. That's who started it. That's how he started it. This is why, right away, that became the culture. How many of you were at the workshop that I did at the end of last year with Andy Jassy from Amazon? Were any of you here? A few hands. OK, so not many. That workshop is up on my site, and um, the video from it. And we talked about how did Amazon Web Services, now a multi-billion dollar business, get started inside Amazon? And the answer is that they were literally trying to figure out how did they cut their own costs for developing products. And they realized, wow, if we can do that for ourselves, why wouldn't we enable that for other people too? And then it'll become even more successful. And that's how the Amazon Cloud got started. So this culture not only pervaded for their retail business, it caused them to end up solving a problem in a really exciting way that generated a whole new multi-billion dollar business. And by the way, 
Amazon in the cloud is today way ahead of everybody else, and they're constantly trying to take prices down. They're not trying to compete for you know, the high margin, high value. They're constantly trying to bring them down. Look at their Kindle introduction, same thing. They're not trying to compete with the iPad. They're trying to have the lowest price at near razor thin margins uh, in order to get the, the market, um, the value product. So this is an example of somebody making a trade-off very early on that has literally driven that company. If anybody you talk to at Amazon, they know that. That is a very clear principle on which they operate everything they do. So another question. We're talking a lot about soft things here, but actually, can culture have a physical manifestation? Let's bring up the Salsify team and, and have them talk a little bit about this. Are there, are there ways that culture comes out in the physical world? We saw, saw the Amazon example with the desk. Jeremy, give us a sense of, of what uh, it's like at Salsify. Sure, I mean, I think that you see this, I mean, just looking at startups in general. I mean, you see photographs of startups, and it was interesting for us sort of having worked in startups or startup-like environments and tech environments for most of our careers, you go and look at real estate. So we, we, we started off in a shared office space uh, down by South Station at Work Bar. Uh, we got a very inexpensive uh, office in Chinatown for a little while, but we, at one point we were sort of ready to, we're at 10 people and we were ready to move into an office, and most offices you go into are incredibly closed off. They're law firms or they're accounting firms or they're, um, especially in Boston. And we walked in and there were almost no spaces that sort of spoke to us as a team and spoke to those values we had early on in terms of how do we have that communication? How do we have that constant communication um, working? And we ended up having to knock a bunch of walls down. <laughs> we ended up having to sort of build these spaces where we could have uh, informal conversations, formal conversations. Um, you do need walls. You, need, you still need to be able to have private conversations. You still need to be able to have uh, conversations that you don't want to have in, in public, and those still need to exist. But you see things like, and we've got screens up on walls all over the place. Some of them are wires still sticking out of them. Um, but it's, we want to constantly be showing what we're doing. So it's, you've got something, you produce something, celebrate that small win. Even if it's just, I just got this great email. Let's put it up on the screen. Let's all look at it. Um, and I think that's really, so it's, it's worked. visibility, everything. On and everything. it's worked for us. I mean, I think it's, listening to a lot of this, I think it's sort of, it's very easy to get into this. Like Jason said earlier, I want that and that and that and that and that and that. I will encourage you when you think about culture to think about what you're not. Um, yeah. And I think okay. it's really important that if, if you're defining your culture in such a way that no one's going to self-select out of your culture, then you don't really have a culture. Um, there needs to be someone who walks in and goes, listen, this sounds great. It's, I like what you guys are doing here. It's just not what I'm looking for. It's just not for me. Um, and I think that we've seen that. I mean, we've talked to folks who are, are phenomenal engineers or phenomenal marketing talents who there just wasn't a, a cultural fit. And I think that's, a, we celebrated that. I mean, we said that's, I thought that was a, it was a difficult thing to do because you get into the, we're incredibly competitive in all kinds of ways and you want to win that person. You want to get that person on board. But I think you need to sort of take a step back and say, okay, in order to preserve this culture going forward, this is, this is the world we need. We can't bring someone on who needs their own office. It's just not who we are, at least at this stage of the company. What a fantastic um, vocalization of it. Thank you. And I, I just wrote this up because I just thought this point stood out for me in particular. Uh, what you are not is an important thing to define in your culture too. So I've, I've often, for those of you who've read it, seen uh, how important it is in startups and, and written about this, that what you don't do is often as defining as what you do do. Well, this really applies in culture too. 
you know, Jeremy just gave an excellent example of it. If people think you're everything, then they're not going to be able to understand that you're anything. And so defining what you're not so that you can self-select um, if you're a potential hire, for example, is super important. It's a great, great statement. So thank you for that. So let's carry on with this. Clearly, uh, culture can have a physical manifestation. In fact, it turns out if you look around at startups, when you walk into them, there's almost invariably a culture that you can instantly spot. Uh, as a VC, I spend obviously lots of time visiting lots of companies. And within five minutes of walking around a company, I can tell you what its culture is. Um, so when I was an entrepreneur, I had a bit of fun with this because people always used to say, hey, you're so passionate about culture. You really love people, and this is a very key thing to you. You know, how can we see that? And I said, well, walk into our company. But our people got so excited about it, we decided to create something called the Founders Wall. And everybody who, who signed up um, into the company decided that they wanted to make uh, an impact in the world. And so they wanted to literally physically sign the wall of the building because they were excited to be there. They wanted to put their manifestation of themselves up there. Uh, this sort of took on a life of its own. And pretty soon, everybody who joined the company wanted to be on what was the Founders Wall. It was like, well, you know, how many people as a founders? We're going to be a big company. So I guess what? We're all going to make a difference. And so it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it went around the corner. And pretty soon, everybody who joined the company went through orientation, selected in, wanted to sign up to be part of this. And by the way, this became so culturally important that in the orientations, it was like a privilege. Everybody in the company wanted to come and see that you got through orientation, you selected in or out. And by the way, some people selected out. We had a couple of people who went through orientation and went, you know what, this is more intense for me. This is not fit for me. And that was cool too. This was the point Jeremy made. Guess what happened when we moved buildings? We took the wall. It was the first thing that came up in the, in the, with the team was like, OK, we, we know we've got to move. We're busting at the seams. We've got to have a new building. You know, the HQ's got to move. But we've got to take the wall. And literally, uh, we had to remove our server room and a bunch of other things in order to get the wall out. But we took the wall with us and the walls, uh, and we, uh, you know, we eventually got to a place where we could fit all the different walls and all the different people. But this stuff makes a difference. And trust me, anybody who uh, works at a company who has these kinds of physical manifestations remembers it. And there are ways you can do this. So they uh, were here with us last year, and they um, are a good example of a company that's really focused on it in the Boston area. It's the fastest growing company in Boston today. They're about to be honored again next week and the fastest uh, software company and growing software company in, in the US, Acquia. And they made a big deal about establishing their culture very early on. So I'm going to uh, play their video for you so you can get a sense of, of how they, they defined it early. Working at Acquia, it's very fast-paced. It's very entrepreneurial. It's challenging, and it's a lot of fun. Working in Acquia is probably the, one of the greatest jobs I've ever had in my life. Acquia's founding changed my life in a, in a pretty big way, helping to build one of the you know, fastest growing startups in Boston. I came to Acquia because I saw uh, an opportunity that I hadn't seen since I got into this industry. You know, the opportunity of getting involved with a platform as um, significant as Drupal, as open as it was, with such a passionate uh, developer community. Working with the open source project, Drupal, is great. It is, it's really the highlight of the job. Just uh, felt like the right place, right time, amazing opportunity. I looked at the vision for Drupal and I said, this is the future, and, and I want to be part of that. So we're hiring like crazy, and um, it's a real challenge. The challenge of growing is, is making sure that we continue to communicate, we continue to find new great people. I think the important thing when you're hiring people, though, is to look not so much for raw experience, what does the resume show, but instead look at 
who they are as a person. Um, I think good people like to work with good people. Instinctive drive to accomplish something in the world, that passion and the smarts to go with it. I'm being with people that I like to be with who share the, those common interests and that makes it a heck of a lot of fun. I'm going to stop it there because I don't want it to become a commercial and there's a piece of that is. But you'll see some things in there that, you know, they very clearly said. You know, people were signing up because they liked the vision. They were signing up because they wanted to work with the kind of people that they saw there. They were seeing the environment they liked that was fast-paced and challenging, etc. And by the way, it's tough to hire at the pace that we've hired. You know, to hire 50 people in a quarter, for example, to, to double your, your uh, employee count in a year. It's just really, really hard to do that and maintain your culture. So this is something that the team really has to work on. And they've worked on it in the last year since we were here, and we're going to have them in actually at the hiring session so you'll be able to meet them. And what they've done is they've really focused on something that, that hopefully we can draw out a little bit of experience from here, which is how do you actually turn your, your values and principles into something that people can really relate to? Because if it's too abstract and people can't engage with it, it's not going to work. It's not going to propagate. And this is a company now that's got offices all over Europe. It's opening up in Asia. And so there are cultures, by the way, that are very diverse in terms of background and people's engagement with the company, obviously from, from different perspectives around the world, is very different. And yet, we're clear we want some specific underlying values that do not change. So whether we're doing business in China or we're doing business in Brazil, we want Aquia's culture to be the same. So the team has developed what they call their DNA. And this is something that I'm helping um, companies try to do more and more is exactly what Jeremy was saying. Don't come up with 50 values because it's really hard to get 50 things, you know, to be consistent across the world in all your different organizations as you grow. Try to come up with a very few that really mean something to you. Now, Acquia's DNA is a whole fascinating subject when you hear about how the team developed it. And by the way, it really was the team developing it. They've developed mascots for this. They've done all sorts of things over the last year. I was there when the, the gathering, about 400 of them from around the world came together. And they talked about how they were going to make sure that this DNA happened. And I'm just going to pick one. So for those of you who don't know what they do, they are the commercial company behind the largest open source project in the world called Drupal, which is used by many of the, the leading websites to build their websites. And so because it's open source, one of the things that they, they have here is a value that is we give back more. So think about open source. The whole concept of open source is that you give back to a community. Whenever you develop something, you give it back. So that was a great value for them because it's natural to what they do, and they do that. Every time they develop something for Drupal, they give it back to the community. But they decided they wanted to go one step further. They didn't want to just give back software. They really wanted to be a give back organization. They wanted to be recognized for giving back to their community. So they've gone off and created days where they will go off, and like this one, the community service day for cradles to crayons, they will go off and contribute to their community with public service. So now that really feels like a value that is not just you know, something you put on a wall. They do it every day in their software, and they do it every uh, chance they get in their community. That's a real value. People can engage with that. They can ascribe to it. They can believe in it. And people at Acquia feel that way. They're passionate about it. And so guess what? Don't come to work at, Afri at Acquia if you don't feel that way. And uh, next week, you'll hear from them, and you'll hear how they attract others. But I just wanted to pick that out, and I wanted to give you it as an example, because I think it is about simplifying, and it is about coming up with a few things that really matter that you can actually operationalize, and that will help you develop your culture. So this is the stage where I'm going to actually make the link that was asked of me before, which is, how do you take culture and operationalize it? How do you link it to execution? And the phrase I'm going to use is a simple one, but hopefully will resonate with you, which is, it's not about just doing anything. 
It's about doing the right thing. And in many instances, it's about doing the right thing as opposed to the easy or obvious thing. Remember I said to you, culture is about how you do business, not necessarily what business you're in. So how do you do that? <laughs> how do you get people to do the right thing? Well, obviously, the more values you give people as touchstones, the easier it's going to be. So I want to give you an example to bring this to life. How many of you have ever rented a car from Enterprise Rent-A-Car? What was your customer service experience? There's somebody at the, who hasn't answered. Lady that back there. What was your experience with uh, Enterprise? Well, it was, um, I, well, I had a pretty good experience because we had a whole lot of mix-ups with our um, rental. Yeah. And they went above and beyond to try to fix our issue. So for me, it was a, a good experience the last time I had to rent a car. So you feel like this that they put up as one of their values, that they focus on customer service. Did you experience that? Yes. You did. So would you use them again? Mm-hmm. Great. Based on that experience, yes. Great. So here's what we, we all know, right? You know that if you walk into Nordstrom, you expect service. You, you know if you walk into Macy's, you expect value. Uh, whatever it is, you pick these brands, you pick these places for a reason. And they cause you to take action based on you know, what you know they represent. Well, Enterprise actually had a really interesting thing happen. It turns out they have a focus on customer service, but like most rental car companies, they make money if you have return journeys. If you all drove off in their cars and never brought them back, they wouldn't be very successful. That's a great idea, and it's a great principle, but what happens when this goes on? You're in New York, the Twin Towers get hit, and you can't wait to get out of the place. In fact, you're scrambling to get out of there. Guess what? Nobody wants to write a return contract. They don't even know where they're going. They just want to get out of there. And that's exactly what happened on 9-11. And this stuff happens all the time. So what do you do? If you're an enterprise you know, employee, do you say, sorry, we can't write you a contract. We can't give you a car because you don't know where you're going and when you're going to bring it back. No. You say, we have a value. It's focus on customer service. They break the rules, and they wrote one-way contracts. And you can bet that everybody who rented an enterprise rent a car that day who was allowed to break the rules went back and rented another one. Why? Because they had a clear cultural value that they subscribed to. Put the customer first, and who cares that we're supposed to write two-way contracts? This stuff makes a difference. And guess what? This happens. Shit happens. Things go on all the time in startups. That literally happened to me. And I sat all day in the enterprise waiting room to get a car and finally got one to leave that night. But that literally, that example so, literally So what's your sense of loyalty towards enterprises? Well, it's pretty, pretty firm. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's great to have you in the room. Uh, this stuff really sticks in your mind. And so guess what? That wasn't in a rule book. It wasn't something you could have predicted. But a value ended up creating some huge, important customer relationships and obviously uh, brand loyalty. So, this is why culture is so important. And what I would call, call out is the underlying, sorry, there's a question in the back. Who made that call to switch gears like that within a couple of hours notice? Was that a CEO call? With no, that's, no, that's the beauty of it. It was made locally. This is the point Jason was making about empowering people. You know, he doesn't want to try to be everywhere all the time. Sorry, I shouldn't jump in. You, you, you jump in. No, I don't want to do much, so I'm... <laughs> Good CEOs don't want to do much, by the way. They try to give the best people the ability to do what they know how best to do at the point of place where they will see the circumstances. If you're the CEO and you're in California and you don't know this is going on, I mean, these days everybody knows what's going on, but 
you know, you may not. You may not know the circumstance. You may not know the particular customer. Obviously, that's a big event. Uh, but no, the point is it was made by people on the spot because they knew that that was the right thing to do. So this is the, the uh, lesson I draw out of that, which is culture is really a touchstone. When things go wrong or there's no obvious answer for what to do, this should be the thing that gives people direction, that helps them prioritize. And if you've, if you've done a good job of your culture, just as enterprise had, it makes it easy for people to know what the right thing to do is, not necessarily the easy thing to do. And that's the exciting thing about culture. So we just talked through the results-oriented culture, and I won't go through that one again. Uh, it turns out there's another piece of execution uh, and operationalizing culture that is very fundamental. So I'll give you a moment to read the cartoon. So I'm a big Dilbert fan. I see this a lot. The truth is that startups have no excuse for not having great communication. If you're a you know, group of five or six guys and gals starting a company, then there's no reason why you shouldn't just be able to communicate. But when you grow really fast, it becomes very hard. And so communication has to be something that you work on. And it turns out that in that same example I was talking to you about Zappos versus American Apparel, the real issue was not only did they not have a culture, but they didn't communicate it and they didn't make it clear. So you can have a great culture, but if you don't communicate it, it's not going to work. So there are lots of ways that you can, you can do this. Um, the good startups that I see both do formal and informal uh, examples of communication. We're going to hear from um, the Salsify guys in a second. And some of them, for example, uh, do things like stand-up scrums for their development teams. They do town halls for their, uh, their teams as a whole. But whatever they do, there's enough communication that it's two-way that the culture can get reinforced and it can get developed and it can get spread. And uh, I will talk about this in a, in a session uh, further down the track when we talk about turning products into companies. But there's a fantastic example on my site of a company called SolidWorks that became a multi-hundred million dollar today, multi-billion dollar value company uh, with a simple culture, uh, sorry, execution statement called 1503. So if you're intrigued by how do you reduce your execution down to, to four numbers, you can find that on my site if you look for SolidWorks. But there are lots of ways you can operationalize communication. And I'd like to have uh, the um, Salsify team for Rob to come up and tell you how's he doing it and what's an example of how you're, you're thinking about communication. Yeah, so the, this one for me is uh, hugely personal and hugely important. And also, I think, one of the most difficult things that um, a lot of people struggle with in, in startups, um, particularly on the tech side, where you know a lot of people are a little more introverted, a little more shy. Uh, on a personal level, communication like n didn't you know, honest and true, honest and open and constant communication was not something that, like, super came natural to me. Um, like, I had one marriage that my first marriage was, like, a failed marriage, and it, like, basically had to, had to do with this, right? And I'm remarried now, and my uh, wife is a psychiatrist, and both of her parents are psychiatrists, and... Um, That's pretty funny. It would be basically, <laughs> like, yeah, seriously, right? And I would be definitely the ugly duckling there if I hadn't had figured out, like, what I had done wrong and spent a lot of time, like, really self-reflecting about what it means to have good and open and constant communication with people in your life that are really around you all the time. And uh, with a startup company, you know, I know it's really easy to say when there's five people, everyone knows what's going on, but you know, we have 10 people now and we're all moving really hard and we're all moving really fast and we don't always know what even the other nine people in the company are up to all the time. Uh, the company that I, I, I worked uh, for immediately before um, founding Salsify with these guys, uh, was called um, Cambridge Semantics, and it had a very different 
form of communication culture than, than the one that, uh, that we're building right now. Uh, it's not bad, it's not a bad culture, it's just what they had. They, they grew out of a research organization and each individual was empowered to sort of come up with their own plan on their own project and their own timeline, right, and work independently. So you almost had like the marketing team over on the left side of the company doing like something with go to market and you had the sales team on the right side of the company um, doing like a bunch of individual sales cycle with individual co customers telling things to each individual customer. And you had engineering broken up into almost one organization per engineer working on different silos of the product. And it meant that they could do an enormous number of things all at the same time. But you know, no one really, like everyone was sort of off on their own and everyone was sort of doing their own thing. And, um, there wasn't a lot of cohesion to, 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 the, to the operational model. Uh, and for me, this, all of these reasons are, like this can be really, really hard to do, right? Like you have to be conscious about, you know what, I'm not just gonna have my headphones in all the time, right? You have to look up and ask questions of the people that are across the desk. Um, if you feel like you're getting out of sync with people in your organization, like I know we started building our go-to-market team at the beginning of August. And uh, we hired a couple guys. Uh, you know, one had just gotten out of um, business school, and uh, another guy who had been a sales guy for Lojack, um, and was doing a bunch of um, uh, startup advising uh, in, in the previous years before coming to work on us. And we were just kind of figuring out how to, how to work as a team. And they sort of went off on their own and would go off on their own for like a week or two, and we'd you know have periodic check-ins. But it just didn't it didn't feel like you know we knew exactly at what level of detail things were succeeding and weren't succeeding, what level of messaging was working with the customers or resonating or wasn't working with the, the customers. Um, and so I think to, to like really win on this stuff, you have to take a step back and be able to say, you know what, um, we need to have a discussion about like what's working and what's not working here. We need to have a discussion about how often do we really need to sync up? What are the things that we're not saying to each other that really need to be said? From interacting with a customer's perspective, I mean, we always talk about, you know, in circumstances like this, you know, we're talking to your um, fellow employees, but also, are you listening more to your customers than you are just talking at them, right? Um, are you asking more questions than you're giving answers to? Um, are, you, are you really out there looking to understand how the person across from you is, is you know, understanding the way that you're speaking and stuff like that? So I, th I think, you know, this one, there's no, there's no one answer to how to communicate constantly. These are all things that, you know, we're working on and, you know, we're, we're conscious of, but uh, it's not something that you just say that you're gonna do and then hope that it happens. It's something that you always have to constantly revisit and question, you know, do I really understand? Uh, are we doing a good enough job? Are we being as open as possible? Is there more that we can do? Uh, so it, it's hard, but it's a really, really, really important one. Just to add to that, it, it, it <clears throat> it's really important to us. We make it a value, but it does not happen naturally. Even in a company as small as 10 people, we have to force ourselves to be on track explicitly add things to the calendar. Otherwise, it just, it, best intentions, it will not happen. I can't imagine how hard it's gonna be at 100 people when I, I already see how hard it is at 10. And I know that we all share the same value. So all I can say is you, if it is important to you, and if it's important to the people that, that you're working with, it just does not naturally happen, or at least it doesn't for us. And I'd underline that. So, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to witness the sort of 10, 100, you know, 1,000 and 10,000 kind of employee growth. And what happens there, actually, it turns out, is, is a pretty simple thing, which is the sort of a, a rule of six that I've observed. The first six people, you know, all you need is a water cooler. The next multiple of six, you know, get up to 30, 35, 40. You actually really need to figure out how to do things like, you know, 
uh, monthly town halls or all hands meetings. And, and then when you grow geographically, you, know, you have to figure out how to replicate that stuff. Um, so it's great to see you guys doing this, you know, daily stand-ups, weekly planning, monthly all hands, you know, everybody having hip chat. Whatever your culture is, I really believe that you can never make it successful without communication being a fundamental backbone to it. So uh, while you're up here, let's also talk about what do you celebrate? Uh, as, as many things as possible. Um, we have a kegerator in the office. It helps. Uh, <laughs> but, but I mean, seriously, like this, you know, building a startup is a slog, right? Like it's easy to look at something like Zappos and say, ah, a billion dollars. But um, man, there's, there's a lot of days where things don't go well, right? Like we, we had uh, the one long, the, the one like really scheduled uh, sales demo we had today was just terrible. Um, <laughs> and there's, there's no good things to say about it. So, you know, it, there's, a, there's a lot of things that go wrong. There's a lot of exper experiments that you try in the product where it's just like, okay, we're gonna go off on a tangent a little bit and see if something works. And it like totally doesn't work, right? So, um, you know, it's like the saying is Rome is not built in a day. So we find that it's super motivating and just makes the environment a lot more fun if the more little things that you can draw attention to that are successful, like the better off that you're gonna be. Um, so I know Jason and Jeremy both hinted at this, uh, but every Friday is Feature Friday. It's a day where you know, engineers can just pick a little thing in the product where they can start building it and finish building it and deliver it all at the end of the day, right? And so as soon as one of the, you know, sometimes they, you know, they work on it the night before and they'll have uh, features going first thing in the morning, but they call the whole company over to, to get the demos and everybody gets to see the demos and you know, that's great. Right? So really, the, it's as many things as possible. And the key part of it is we like to celebrate our employees um, and their interests and the things that they're excited about. So. I mean, this is just a slide with our current team. That's not us, uh, and a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the individual things that make them all special. Uh, but we like to, you know, we like to draw attention to them, even if it's embarrassing, and uh, let them know that, <laughs> you know, we really love them being around, and we really love the little things that make them, you know, who they are, and we really love the little things that bring the, that they bring to the table, um, on a personal level. So, really, it's it, any excuse that you can have to call out, you know, anything at all that's positive. Um, I think is really, really important to us and you know, makes the whole thing a lot more enjoyable. It, I mean, there really is a lot of work that goes into you know, every little step of the startup, so. Yeah. To, to For the record, we do get work done. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's true. <laughs> so thank you very much. So we're coming to the end here, but I, I wanted to just highlight this one piece that's, again, operational. It turns out that if you give people clear responsibility and you make them accountable for things, this is a fundamental thing you've got to do to make your culture actually work. You've got to create the right recognition and rewards to reinforce your culture. And by the way, this team gave you an example of something that they were really open about, which is when they screw up, they say so. They actually spend a bunch of time talking about the demo that went wrong or the customer that's not working or you know, the first customer that we decided not to pursue. And that's a huge strength of good cultures is usually they're very focused, at least equally focused, on what's not working as much as celebrating what is working. And so, you know, whether you decide to make that part of your culture or not, I just observe that it's something that makes a big difference. Now, form and substance are a big deal. So, you know, startups often don't have a lot of money to give around, but you know what? It doesn't take money sometimes to just have a, you know, whatever it is, a Klondike break or, you know, to recognize somebody's birthday. But it can be something as basic as, you know, as I talked about earlier, management taking a day to do community work. It doesn't cost you anything. Sure, it costs you some time and energy. But those are the kinds of things, if you have a culture that you're saying is giving back, you can go make a difference. And that establishes for people what you really believe in. In other words, it's about what you actually do rather than what you say. And another thing that I think is free and is underutilized is just acknowledgement. Be a culture, for example, that says thank you or 
you know, appreciates when somebody's gone above and beyond. You don't necessarily have the resources in, in a startup to go you know, award them a whole bunch of money, but that's okay. People don't necessarily need that. The point though is that if culture is going to be successful, it has to have some kind of audit to it, some balance and check, uh, check and balance to it. And that's what the, the recognition reward scheme really should, should do. So let me start to summarize here by saying the, the thing hopefully you're taking away is that culture can make a really big impact. And so the earlier you define it and the more authentic it is to you so you can actually live it every day, then the, the more likely you are to be able to be consistent and therefore to build value from it. And I really want to emphasize this. This is even when you're pivoting or changing or constantly iterating your business, your culture should not be going through that kind of change. Uh, and if I were to uh, bring up these brands, my guess is that whether it's Nordstrom or it's Starbucks or it's Virgin, you could pretty clearly identify you know, the brand and what it stood for and what that culture was. We don't have time to go into them today, but it's the kind of thing that um, I'm happy to do in, in deeper uh, workshops in the future. And if you took any of them apart, and I'll put some of them on my site, by the way, what I would draw out from some of these brands, you will see that their cultures are absolutely, as we've talked about, rooted in everything from the way they behave and how they run their business to what they actually act on and how they treat their customers. So as I say, uh, define it early. And um, the bottom line here is walk the talk. So don't actually try to put too much up there if you're not actually going to do, uh, have it defined by you yourself because you're going to have to lead by example. The founder, it's the bottom line here, of the business or the founders are very often the basis for culture to get formed. And so if it isn't who you are, it's not going to work. If it is who you are and you can be very authentic about it, it is. Sorry, you have a question. I'm sorry, it's a burning question. I have sure. an idea I'm trying to find for co-founders and team members. Yeah. Should I go ahead and try to define the culture by myself? Or is it more like, because this to me seems like it's, it's really driven by the people you work with. Should I yeah. just form a team based on skills or whatever that works out and then kind of think of what culture we can all resonate with? I would say that, that there's no, again, right or wrong answer to this. If you believe there are certain things that are really important to you, you might make them your personal mission statement, your personal vision, your personal culture, and be open with them. That'll certainly help people form as a team around you because they'll know what's important to you. So you can do no harm by starting there. But then obviously, you're going to have to create what is a founding team and a set of convictions that are shared by you. Because shared values is really important. I mean, you know, if everybody's distinct, that's not going to work. But I think it'll help you find people who do share values with you. So yeah, does that answer your question? Great. So one final example here. Um, many people know the story, but if you haven't followed it, Southwest Airlines went to the top of the U.S. domestic airline industry. And uh, the CEO at the time, um, oh, sorry, the co-founder, Herb Kelleher, was very famous for this quote because lots of people looked at, at, at Southwest's strategy and said, ah, it's easy to copy. Yet they never managed to beat them. And the reason was very simple. You could easily rewrite the strategy for Southwest Airlines. It's an easy thing to go read the case study. But what he'd really done was important. He'd built a cultural understanding right throughout the organization of how they were going to be successful. And people couldn't copy that because it was ingrained into the organization. It was who they'd hired. It was the way they operated every day. And so for you, I hope what you take away from this is if you do this right, you really can use culture to build an enduring, consistent, valuable company. And I hope that gives you a basis to uh, come back next week and listen to what we'll talk about, which is hiring. But thank you very much for your patience.